Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on connective tissue conditions and what we can do to treat our symptoms to live more fulfilling lives. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only, not for medical advice. Please consult a qualified practitioner before making any changes to your own regimen. On today's episode, Savita Sandhu from Savvy Dietetics, located in Brisbane, Australia, is joining us again to talk about hypermobility and our diets. Savita received her bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics with honors at the Queensland University of Technology and underwent postgraduate training with the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. Savita also has an amazing Instagram page at Hypermobility Dietitian, and that's Dietitian with two T's for our American listeners, uh, where she provides information and resources about food and micronutrients for hypermobile people. And we'll include links to her page and to her Instagram page in the episode notes. Savita, hello, and thank you for joining us again today. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, of course, your first episode was so well received and so fantastic. Um, And hello to all of our Australian listeners. Um, And thanks to um, those who have reached out recently uh, with some great suggestions for some future guests. Um, Let's dive right in and um, talk about sort of the second part of the discussion we were having earlier. Um, And this time, let's focus on POTS. So what are your key insights about the role of diet in treating and managing the symptoms of POTS? Certainly, and definitely such a big topic because POTS is one of those conditions that really does impact so many hypermobile people. I reckon let's jump in with breaking down, uh, or I guess how I explain POTS in clinic and some key things that I look out for. So POTS is one condition that's under a much bigger umbrella of something called dysautonomia. So dys means irregularity and autonomia, the second part of that referred, refers to the autonomic nervous system. So autonomic like automatic It's the part of our nervous system that regulates all of those essential functions that we don't consciously think about. So everything from heart rate to blood pressure, temperature, sweating, um, you know, how our gut moves and so on. So dysautonomia is quite a broad term to describe when, you know, stuff in our nervous system goes a bit haywire and out of balance, which is kind of what it feels like for me. And I'm sure you might relate there, Kerry. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our autonomic nervous system, uh, we'll just do the biochemistry to start with. We've got two branches of our autonomic nervous system, which control slightly different functions. And I like to think of it like a seesaw or a light switch. So we've got two different sides to that. And you're almost kind of really in one or the other. And on one side of the light switch, we have our rest and digest mode or parasympathetic mode, which is a really happy place for our body to sit in and that's ideally where we want it to be most of the time. And when we are here, we often feel happy and calm. Our gut work is our gut will be working well, and we won't be experiencing too many of those POTS symptoms. On the other side of the switch, so to speak, we've got fight and flight mode or sympathetic mode. And if we think about this, I guess with our bodies, you know, lifestyle as humans has almost evolved a lot quicker than our brain has because back in the day, being in that fight and flight mode would have been absolutely awesome if we were, say, like a cave woman running away from a threat, so like a bear or some sort of tiger, because it redirects a lot of our oxygen resources, nutrients towards our muscle and brain and boosts up our stress response so we can, you know, run away from things, fight our way out of situations and get out of there. But 
I guess nowadays, um, especially within the hypermobile community, a lot of those more stress triggers to the body may be, you know, in relation to more inflammation, um, you know, injury or micro injuries from being hypermobile and other factors. Another thing is that being in this sympathetic mode does really turn down digestion and that can contribute to, um, you know, so, so many symptoms. That's such, and thank you for that kind of overview to situate us in what we're talking about here, because it's such an important reminder. And your analogy about we evolved from cave people that were running from lions, and you definitely need that adrenaline burst to be running away from a lion. And it's interesting that you mentioned the gastrointestinal part in quick succession, because I, I read a book, I think it might be called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Mm. Um, and, and so it's possible I'm conflating this with another book that I read, but I came across the concept that when you're running away from a lion, like you digesting your food is not a high priority. You know, you, you booking it out of there is so like your blood is redirected from those functions. And that just made so much intuitive sense to me. But in this modern world, our stressors are a lot more opaque and persistent, certainly of a different nature, typically than a wild animal charging us, you know, that certainly happens from time to time, we see it in the news, but it's, it's not our day to day. And I think I've seen some research suggesting that amygdalas in people with hypermobility are uh, thought to be enlarged. And I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a component there with the with spending too much time and being sort of overactive into the sympathetic side of things. Because I think a lot of us really relate to that, like you said, the fight or flight. And I think, you know, sometimes people say freeze is another instinct in there. Definitely. Um, But I think a lot of us spend more time, certainly than we would like in that kind of activated state and get activated with maybe a lower threshold than people who are not hypermobile, it seems. No, exactly. Exactly. That's such um, a good way to flush that out and sum that up. And um, So I guess the next step is, so that's kind of dysautonomia under a bit of an umbrella. And then POTS is just one type of dysautonomia that's often seen with hypermobile people. And it's, you know, mostly characterized or it's, you know, largely characterized by becoming dizzy and getting a racing heart when we stand up after sitting down. But with any kind of dysautonomia, there are going to be a whole other host of symptoms that go along with that because of that change and flip in regulation of the nervous system towards being in a more sympathetic state. I guess just off the top of my head, a few other symptoms that go along with that might include things like brain fog, um, more headaches and migraines, feeling shortness, short of breath, and also temperature regulations and um, symptoms. So whether that's getting rain odds, so where our fingers turn different colors because of the changes in blood flow when it gets cold or you know when we get stressed, also sweating and feeling the heat really easily um, and anxiety just to get the gist of things that side. But um, in terms of gut symptoms, a lot of the gut symptoms that I see in clinic that go along with that are nausea, bloating, reflux is another huge one and a big change in how the gut moves in general. So either on you know two ends of the extreme, the gut can either move really slowly with that change in being more in that sympathetic state. Um, Or on the other hand, we sometimes see that the gut moves really, really quickly. So on the slow side of things, um, I guess on the extreme end, we can look at gastroparesis. So where food, um, you know, the stomach struggles to empty food into the small intestine. And on the other end of things, we have dumping syndrome where, you know, we eat food, it goes into our stomach, but before it can be broken down and digested, it's 
kind of just ejected into the next phase of our digestive tract, which then makes it really, really hard for the rest of that digestive tract to absorb the nutrients when they've not been broken down. That makes so much sense. And thank you for that summary as well, because in my own personal experience and reading a fair bit about hypermobility and and most importantly, speaking to other hypermobile people, I think the gut dysfunction is probably the most prominent thing that I hear about in different forms. But issues with that seem to be not, if not universal, pretty close, like that that's really a huge issue. And and like I said, it kind of makes sense when we're spending more of our time than is optimal, maybe in that sympathetic state, our blood is being recruited to the organs like the heart and the brain, you know, away from the extremities away from the digestive tract. And like you said, it just kind of stands to reason if if our intestinal area, which is a huge area, and Mm. needs a significant amount of blood flow and a relaxing environment, you know, we, we we kind of think of the, you know, after eating a big meal, that kind of foggy, restful, sleepy feeling that we get. It seems to me that it takes quite a lot of energy to digest food in general. And then some foods in particular um, are going to be taking more of that body's resources, blood flow, um, all those those nutrients and things. So it makes a lot of sense, but it's certainly very difficult to live with. <laughs> exactly. And it can, it definitely is. And, you know, at the end of the day, we are what we eat and absorb. And If, you know, with the changes that happen sometimes with pots, we're not able to digest and absorb our food as well. That's going to impact every facet of our life and how we feel because we're not going to be getting the nutrients that we need to get, you know, keep our body running and, you know, reduce stress and inflammation and help ourselves heal. But in terms, it's really interesting that you brought up um, just before that, you know, it feels like some foods take a lot more oomph to digest than others. Mm -hmm. Because I think that can be really neatly described as well with pots or in the context of pots. Because uh, one of the things I look for a lot in clinic are symptoms of low stomach acid, which are really, really common with any sort of autonomic nervous condition. Because as we've kind of touched on before, when we are in that sympathetic state, basically it's like the volume gets turned down on the whole digestive system. So there's a whole net of blood flow that goes to the gut. Our gut also has its own nervous supply, which is the enteric nervous system. And all of that gets turned down when we're in that sympathetic state. And with that, we also get less digestive secretions. So that's everything from stomach acid to our um, gallbladder releasing less bile and our pancreas as well, releasing less pancreatic enzymes. The thing that I find really interesting is that a lot of our nervous, a lot of our gut is regulated or responds to um, acid and base changes. So it responds to pH changes. So if we don't get a good sufficient amount of stomach acid secretion at our stomach, it starts to break down protein foods and digest foods in general, then we're not going to get, you know, the rest of our nervous system, you know, our pancreatic enzymes won't activate and um, it does change how our gut digests and absorbs food in general. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm just, it's putting pieces together because I'm thinking about how typically I try to eat smaller meals because I've heard that that's helpful for pots to not have as much as the dizziness and brain fog. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the smaller meals. I was thinking of how when I eat a slightly larger meal, um, which I try to do in the evening in part two kind of wind down, Mm. I can hear and feel the stomach acid going. And it's kind of a little bit, you know, unnerving. It's like, whoa, there's like, like it seems like it's working all the time, essentially. Um, Almost so like that, when you're watching a video on like one of those old DVD players, and you hear it start to ramp up. 
yeah. if you or like on an old computer and you're trying to like load some like you know a big file or something like that and you can just hear it whirring yes yes like it's really yeah like giving it its best but like yeah like a an engine that's like trying to turn over but is like needs some <laughs> service on it or something yeah that's an interesting analogy for sure so I think something else to mention just with the stomach acid side of things is people can tell if they've got low stomach acid in particular. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Kerry. Um, I know when I was really sick a few years ago, I did, but they find it really hard to digest food in the morning. So I often, what I see in clinic is people say, oh, you know, I can't eat breakfast before 11 o'clock in the morning, or, you know, I can only have a piece of toast for breakfast. Um, and, you know, any symptoms as well, like, you know, not being able to tolerate large meals. So in clinic, when I'm, you know, asking people questions, we often talk about bloating and I ask them, is it, you know, the kind of bloating that you feel within, you know, 15, 20 minutes of eating a meal that stops you from eating a meal and, you know, your stomach almost expands to the point where you just feel pregnant? Or is it more of that gradual bloating that comes up in half an hour to an hour after meals? Because that first kind of bloating is really indicative as well of low stomach acid. Um, and I think one surefire symptom that um, indicates that as well is belching or burping. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I, I guess, yeah, do you have thoughts on, and I, I know it's really hard to speak because, and again, good reminder, we're all different. And that's why as difficult as it is, like to the extent people can work with a qualified practitioner and get their levels tested and get individualized treatment, like that's really key. But do you have general observations when it comes to POTS if like the smaller meals approach throughout the day, you know, seems to help people or intermittent fasting? Like, are there, there theories coming out on that? Or is that still in the realm of really individual and we don't really have the research to say? Mm, thanks for bringing that up, Carrie. And I think just in general uh, with hypermobility and nutrition, there's just not the research there um, to, you know, back up a lot of things. And there is so much research that needs to be done in that area, but there are some incredible initiatives out there and I've got no doubt that we'll be able to see some more concrete, um, you know, evidence and support for strategies. But I guess in the meantime, with my clinical observations and experience, um, I definitely, yeah, let's talk about some strategies that people could potentially think about trying. Um, I guess there are definitely some nutrition strategies that we can go through, but one thing that I'd love to emphasize is that because you know, a really, really big part of POTS is that imbalance or a big part of dysautonomias is, is that imbalance in the nervous system. Doing any other adjunct therapies to get us more into that parasympathetic state are so, so valuable. So whether that's working with other health professionals who can help, um, you know, stimulate the vagus nerve or do therapies that do stimulate the vagus nerve, whether that's, um, you know, I've heard some wonderful podcasts with you and other health professionals talking about breathing for EDS and, you know, doing that to calm the nervous system. Also other therapies, like I really love referring to acupuncturists and I've got a, you know, chiropractor who do only chiropractors that work with the EDS and hypermobility community and have experience in dysautonomia too, because we can, at the end of the day, we can have the best diet possible, um, you know, eating the most, you know, whole foods, we can spend all of our time cooking and shopping and planning. But if our nervous system isn't in a state where it's starting to relax, and we can start to digest that food, it's going to be incredibly difficult to, um, you know, move forward quickly. Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that component, because that's something that I certainly have to put conscious effort into trying to figure out how to relax, which is 
kind of counterintuitive or extremely <laughs> counterintuitive, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of a massage I once got where the massage therapist was like kind of shouting at me, relax this muscle, relax this muscle. And I'm like, I'm trying. I'm as relaxed as I get. Like, you know, I, oh, I don't even know where to begin. But yeah, those, some of those breathing techniques have been very helpful for me. And I'm so glad you mentioned acupuncture. I've had some great experiences. You know, I've certainly heard experiences when it comes to all different practitioners, really, but I've mm-hmm. heard a variety of different experiences. I, I have some kind of like chronic, my left arm and shoulder just kind of chronically weak and the signal mm. isn't great. And one of the last times I got acupuncture in there, I could like feel the, I don't know if it's the nerve signaling or like, but almost like an electrical feeling like going down that arm, like it was waking back up again. And it was mm. really incredible. And so I think that's such a great preface. And that's what you do so well. You look at these things in context. And like you're saying, you know, for, you know, for a dietitian, obviously you're focusing on diet. That's what you study. Mm-hmm. But you're also realizing that if people aren't able to get into that parasympathetic state, which a lot of us really struggle with, then making all the dietary changes and putting all that work into a really great diet, the benefits still aren't going to be accruing, you know, in the way that they would. So yeah, I really encourage people to as much as they can to find what relaxes them. And I'm kind of talking to myself when I say this, um, <laughs> I really enjoy those flotation tanks. They're not inexpensive by any means, so it's not something I can do all the time. I wonder if the, if those are starting to become popular in Australia. They're starting to pop up here. It seems like quite a few places, and um, those uh, because you're floating in uh, magnesium, Epsom salts. I think it helps to kind of restore that magnesium. Like I get a lot of the leg twitching, the muscle tightness and mm-hmm. twitching with um, magnesium. And so it's it's somewhat of a relaxing experience, but it's also, you know, it's certainly not for everyone. I'm a bit claustrophobic as well. And so being in that enclosed environment just with my own thoughts and having to relax is a bit my nightmare. But the times when I've been able to relax, I found the benefits kind of accrue for days. But uh, sorry for that tangent. But um, I was actually going to add to that as well. That's um, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was preparing for this podcast, because I've done a couple of um, those magnesium flotation or float sessions are becoming really popular in Australia. And um, I remember I did a few a while ago. And magnesium is just so well absorbed through the skin. So if people can, yeah, if that's something that floats people's boat, then they can, you know, definitely trying things out like that can be really interesting. But I agree with you there. It's really intense and it can take a few sessions to kind of settle in there and get your mind space right to be able to relax and, uh, you know, meditate and calm your thoughts. But when you do get in that state, it's absolutely wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely. And I really liked that the place that I went to for the float. I had gone to two different places a, a while ago, and the second one showed a video where they recommended trying to count your breaths up to 300 and mm. focus on your breaths to give your mind something to do. And I just throw that tip out there for anyone like me who finds it really difficult to concentrate and stay still and relax because I found that helpful. I've never come close to the 300. I think sometimes maybe it's 50, sometimes maybe it's 100 in like an hour. So it's aspirational for sure. But you know, whatever thing, I also like to imagine like past warm, friendly vacation experiences or, you know, mm. nice moments like that. Yeah. Finding those things that help you get into a more relaxed mode are so helpful for a number of things. And so that's a great lead in to talking about the, like your different approaches. For sure. And actually, since we're on the topic of breathing, let's continue with that. Cause that's something that I 
really encourage a lot of my clients to do um, and I always try and encourage try keep, need to keep reminding myself to do as well but it's a great way of um, getting our body and that mind gut connection working before a meal so um, the one thing that I do you know one thing that I do find is quite helpful is and it's quite small as well and manageable is even you know when you do sit down to eat a meal not actually diving into it straight away so putting it down on the table in front of you looking at it and doing three deep breaths, really, you know, taking a deep breath in and then focusing on a really long, slow exhale, um, which is the key. And while you're doing those, looking at things on your plate, if you get, you know, if you need other things to distract your brain, then, you know, talk to yourself, name the different elements on the plate, name the colors, name the smells, name, um, you know, any other sensory stimuli that you're getting. And what that can do is it just gives you a moment for your nervous system to catch up and for your brain to go, oh, we've got food in front of us, which then communicates that to your stomach, increases stomach acid production and the rest of your nervous system. Because if you think about it almost like when you, you know, go somewhere and, you know, or you go over to a friend's house and they're cooking a really yummy dinner for you and, you know, you're smelling the food or you're cooking a nice dinner for yourself and you're smelling the food and, you know, you're smelling it for maybe an hour beforehand or something, and then you go to sit down and eating and almost just salivating, um, which is your nervous system and digestion just preparing itself. So just a couple of deep breaths before a meal can really help us get in, get into that mindset where we're a bit more able to digest our food better in some cases. That's a fantastic tip, and I'm definitely going to use that. And it connects something I had heard previously and an approach to dealing with when you're feeling really anxious or overwhelmed. And, you know, that can come from a physiological cause like a mast cell type reaction or a more cognitive mental psychological cause for sure. But I've heard it can be helpful to name or even even if it's just in your head, look around you and think and look at objects and, you know, think of lamp, plant, like do things and then, you know, think of like one of the tips in one of these stress relieving books I read, I wish I could remember the name. Like, it's a great book. I'll, I'll, I think it might be called Dissolving Pain, actually. Funny how those things come to us. But I think it was that one that suggested like thinking about the space between your thumb and forefinger and just mm. like thinking about the tip of your thumb and like tracing your your thoughts like along the inside of that space. And so any of these things we can do that reconnect us to our physical environment. I love your tip because it's so specific to eating and it's so easy, you know, three breaths and just look at the food and, you know, kind of, like you said, give your nervous system a chance to catch up because I was thinking about that too. So much of our eating in our culture these days is on the go or, you know, very hurried. That's difficult for our bodies that are sort of evolved to be, you know, eating in more perhaps calm environments and, learning about things like how little things can affect how full we feel or not on the size of the plate, whether it's how the presentation is laid out, like all of that can kind of contribute to our, I guess, our ability to digest and sort of the more physical components. And so I love that tip because it's just, it's so simple and, and easy to implement. Like those kind of things are really lovely. So thanks for sharing that. Awesome. And yeah, I find with the three breaths, three breaths is kind of manageable. It doesn't feel too overwhelming <laughs> either, mm -hmm. which um, is always good. And I guess adding on to that, then when we do get our body into that state where we potentially are a bit more connected uh, with our food or a little bit more, you know, starting to join, you know, jo make that connection with the nervous system and the gut or, you know, supporting that, um, you know, talk and chatter between our brain and our gut that's when, you know, we're more likely to be able to chew our food better as well. 
which of course with you know a lot of the TMJ troubles that new discomfort that people do get with EDS can be really tricky. And of course, when we put food in our mouth, that's the very first step in digesting our food and chewing our food properly can be such a big help to then our stomach acid and or, you know, our stomach for that to break down our food and the rest of our digestive system to then further digest and absorb our food. So um, chewing the food after, you know, properly <laughs> after doing the deep breaths is kind of the next step of where we'd go with that progression. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a good reminder to have because like I said a lot of times I feel like we're eating in kind of hurried situations and it's something that we're not really trained to be mindful about how to eat because it seems so basic and yet it's something that can make a big difference for sure and anything that's kind of easy to implement with low or no potential for side effects is like great I think so definitely you had mentioned the the stomach acid issues and the Mm -hmm. the low stomach acid being a big issue and and I've certainly I believe I'm experiencing that and I I think I've heard Mm -hmm. that quite a bit are there ways other than that method of bloating to determine whether you have like I've never heard of any kind of you know blood test or anything but are there other ways that dietitians confirm there's low stomach acid or do you kind of treat it and then see if that helps? Or I guess, what are the different approaches to um, a a suspicion of low stomach acid? Mm, At the moment, there are no tests that are readily available. I understand there are tests that, um, and I was talking about this with my mentor a while ago, that um, have been around in the past where, for example, people swallow uh, pills that have little pH sensors in, and you can tell that way objectively what stomach acid levels are. But otherwise, we just try and go with a really good symptom picture. So, you know, not really struggling to digest food in the morning. In terms of low stomach acid symptoms, um, the summary that we had a chat about before really um, are some of the key symptoms that I look out for there. And so what are the different ways of treating that? Are there medications or supplements that are helpful or not helpful when it comes to promoting stomach acid or other approaches? Mm-hmm. So I tend to take a really gentle approach. Of course, people need to be working. Um, that's where it's really good to have a good general practitioner, or I believe in America, you call them um, PCPs, or a good doctor team and medical team in general that you can touch base with, who can, because um, I'm a dietitian, I usually just do, um, you know, food is within my scope of practice. In terms of nutrition strategies, I tend to go really gently. So firstly, supporting our nervous system to digest the food. But, you know, then looking at things like, you know, how can we make our food as easy to digest as possible? So to start with, people might need to have smaller, more regular meals. Um, And, you know, in those, we might also be looking to make sure that the food is really easy to digest. So some of the tips that I give around that are just making sure that you're having warm and cooked food. Because if we think about it, our stomach is a pit of acid and it's got to heat our food up to body temperature and then break it down. So anything that's cold, frozen, raw is going to take extra blood flow and energy, which, um, you know, having EDS or any, you know, hypermobility, any conditions like that can be a little bit more challenging. So that could look like, you know, just swapping, you know, not eating frozen foods, for example, um, you know, if you have a smoothie in the morning, because, you know, liquidized foods can be easier for people to digest in the morning uh, with low stomach acid. And, you know, smoothies I often find when they're, you know, balanced to have a mix of proteins, carbs and fats and fiber can be a really awesome way to go. But, um, you know, often, you know, a lot of smoothie ingredients are very cold. So that can then trigger gut symptoms in some people. So instead, you know, making sure all of your fruits are room temperature. 
um, you know, instead of having salads, swapping them out to something cooked. Instead of having cold lunches, you know, asking yourself, is there any way that I can heat this up? Can I take a thermos to work instead? I guess there's some of the just easy starting base, you know, dietary strategies. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great tips. And I've, I've noticed that difference. Actually, I was uh, talking to someone recently and they shared that when working in a restaurant, they were drinking the ice water and someone mm. told them, no, don't drink that. It hurts your digestion. And I started thinking about that because I'm pr- almost perpetually cold, except for when I'm burning hot. Like I'm mm. probably 95% of the time have you know, cold hands and feet, except getting these kind of hot moments, drinking something cold, like makes me feel more cold. And Mm. so I've tried, like I used to, you know, keep a lot of things in the refrigerator. And a lot of things now I either let warm up, or I just store them outside the refrigerator, like whatever coconut water, protein shakes, that kind of thing. And I notice it makes a big difference. It's easier for me to get it down in the first place. And then it doesn't have that effect of making me feel cold. So again, another great, really practical tip that people can play around with on their own. But yeah, it's definitely, it's made a big difference for me letting things sit for a little bit if they've been in the fridge or a really cold environment. Because um, yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I think in general, hypermobile people tend to be very sensitive, you know, anything we can do to make ourselves, you know, more comfortable is, um, is good, especially in this context of trying to kickstart that parasympathetic nervous system that is um, not getting as much drive time as, uh, as we would hope. Definitely. And I'm not sure if um, you've jumped on this bandwagon, Kerry, but uh, a few months ago, like we've always been like I grew up in a family where we cook lots of soups and stews. And, you know, as soon as it starts to get cold, it's soup season and just everything's soups. Not too long ago, I invested in a slow cooker and I feel like it's absolutely changed how I cook foods. And of course, slow cooking isn't for everyone because the longer we cook food, um, some people who are really sensitive to histamine can sometimes react to that just because it is being cooked for longer. But I've also found that an absolute game changer because in terms of fatigue, um, you know, I can just, you know, chuck everything in there in the morning and, um, you know, make sure that there's some protein in there, some different fibers some veggies I like, um, and then turn it on, leave it. And then, you know, by lunchtime or dinner time, there's something really delicious waiting that is very well cooked. And, you know, it's almost pre-digested and the fibers are all broken down. And as well, I find it a e- much easier ways to digest uh, legumes and beans as well. So increasing protein through that way. So that's just another tip as well. But have you jumped on that bandwagon yet? <laughs> uh, you know, I have not yet in part just because um, even like uh, I do have a, what is it called? Instant pot, um, which I think oh, is yeah. like a- uh, Pressure but I guess, Yeah, yeah. It's the same lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm currently really hindered in what I can do with my arms. Uh, and uh, I would, like, yeah. even like popping is really problematic. So it's definitely something I'd like to get into more. But I have noticed like a lot of foods I cannot eat at all raw. So like mm. if I even have like a little piece of pepper in a salad, like a bell pepper or an onion, when you just mentioned that about the belching, like it's a little bit of like oh, an overshare, like I, I feel so proud <laughs> of sharing it. But if I eat something like that, like if I'm someone else's prepared food or something and I, I I don't notice and I end up eating it I can just taste the onion or I can taste the pepper and it's just like it feels like it's like right there like it doesn't digest and it's just kind of hanging out but things that are cooked for a really long time I'm much less sensitive to I mean I still have to balance it all and you know try to figure it out but it seems like certainly for some people that could be helpful but tough balance too because I understand that 
some foods, the more you cook them down, the nutrient value can go down too, but a fine balance with all these things. And that's why, again, we've already said this, but so important to, you know, like it's really helped me in, in tracking my own symptoms after eating certain foods and realizing what those sensitivities are to avoid them. And I was just speaking with a, a patient advocate who's worked with EDS patients for a number of years. And she was saying that a lot in her experience, you know, just sort of talking to patients and in her own experience, she's noticed that a lot of hypermobile people are sensitive to soy, gluten, dairy, and nightshades. Mm. Have, have you have you noticed those kind of trends? Or do you think they're extremely individual? Or again, we, we need to wait for the, the research to come in? I think again, they're extremely individual. But in, I guess, in practice, and I always... I'm always cautious about, you know, advising around, you know, cutting out whole food groups or people being sensitive to whole food groups, because a lot of the time what can happen is, you know, people can then go ahead and pull foods out without proper support and not actually replace those with other nutritious foods to make sure they're getting the foods that they need. But um, I do agree there, especially with the gluten, the dairy, and um, in some cases, soy as well. I do see that in some cases, people do respond really, really well to removing or reducing those foods even if it's just for a period of time but of course I think you know a lot of dietary changes um, you know people can have a play around with gentle things by themselves because it's so hard to access dietary care in so many countries and I do acknowledge that it can be really challenging but at the same time I think when we start playing around with removing more food groups it can be really valuable to get that support. Absolutely. And that's such an important point to make, because that's something I've certainly struggled with, too, in trying some of these sort of more intense diets, like the low FODMAP and some of the different things like it can be really hard when you're used to eating certain foods, and you do this kind of radical shift. And it's a difficult process. And especially when we've been eating something our whole life, or maybe it's our comfort food or whatever. But Mm -hmm. I know from kind of experimenting myself. If I eat pasta that's made with wheat, I get really tired, I get really sluggish. But I found that that bonza pasta, oh, yeah. the one made with like chickpeas, and I think maybe it has like more protein or something. I'm not sure. Very but... good source of protein. Very good source of protein. Okay. Yeah, that it agrees with me much, much more. Um, still get tired, but not that kind of fall asleep level of tired. And so that's been interesting. And I've had good experiences with pea milk, pea protein. Mm-hmm. There's a brand, a brand here, I think that's called Ripple, and they make different pea milks. And I've just found that it seems like I have much less of that if it's whatever acid coming up or burping kind of thing. Mm. And so that's but that's me, you know, just totally me in case anyone out there is thinking of looking into these things. But again, like, hopefully with like with the guidance and oversight of a, a medical practitioner, because these things are all interrelated. And, um, you know, so some people for sure respond really well to some of those alternative diets. And I've heard really great success stories. But for a lot of us, it's kind of an ongoing challenge to manage getting enough nutrients in and getting them digested and, and having things that are appetizing and appealing to eat. It's a it's a tough balance to strike, I think. Exactly, Carrie. And even, um, I guess, going back to the gluten and dairy side of things and, you know, how you were saying before, you know, these changes aren't for everyone. It really depends on symptoms. Um, I think you're exactly right there. And what I find really fascinating as well is that the protein that's in wheat product and dairy product with gluten and dairy, those um, some of those proteins include like gluten and casein. They can actually, when they when you do eat them and they go into your stomach, they mix with stomach acid and they create opioid-like compounds, which can then 
change gut motility further and slow down the gut. So that's where, you know, for example, if someone's in a place where we have done a bit of a diet tidy up, we're addressing nutrient deficiencies, but we're still quite not, not quite there. That's where playing around with something like that can be really helpful under guidance. And of course, you know, providing people with lists of, um, you know, country specific, you know, foods and brands that they can go out and buy um, that they potentially might tolerate better. Because especially if someone's experiencing, say, slow gut motility, so really bad constipation, um, you know, within reason or more moderate constipation and just slower moving of things through the gut, for example, things like that can help. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that about the casein because I was doing some research on that as well. I know someone who is addicted is probably too strong of a word, but let's say heavily dependent on cheese. And mm-hmm. um, and I just thought how interesting that was. And and then I was reading about how the pro- some of the proteins in cheese are similar to opioids or can have an opioid-like effect. And mm-hmm, exactly. So that made so many light bulbs go on for me because as much as I love cheese fondue, if I have some, like I'm immediately sleepy and like, you know, very lethargic and all of that. And it's, it's a strong effect. And so again, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is informed consent, just knowing what these things do. And, and then, so being able to, to track what fuels your body and makes it stronger and feel good and what may be uh, more challenging for it, you know, for some people, figuring out how to moderate those things or, you know, for some people finding substitutes, you know, whatever it may be in the individual case. But yeah, learning about these things has been incredibly fascinating. And I just, I wonder how I didn't end up learning these things earlier in life and glad to see that more of this discussion is kind of getting out there now and that there is more research on some of these really interesting phenomena in food that I would have thought of otherwise. Mm. And I guess, you know, um, segueing from that into, because we were talking about stomach acid before and you were saying, uh, you know, if there are any other strategies to improve, um, you know, digestion and being able to eat potentially a little bit more at meals, because I understand it can be really um, small frequent meals uh, can be absolutely amazing when we do have more symptoms and we can't tolerate that. But uh, what I see quite a bit in clinic is that, you know, people can ping pong between not being able to digest much, they have small meals, and then they constantly feel hungry. And, you know, because potentially with the small frequent meals, we're not able to balance those out with enough proteins and fats, or then, you know, digest the proteins and fats. And, you know, that can really lead to those being in that cycle of being hungry, having blood, blood sugar levels, and then eating quite regularly. So one thing that I also find again, is one of those things that generally, um, you know, doesn't, you know, can't really take people backwards, but, you know, they can try it and just see if it works is, um, you know, bitter foods because bitter foods do and bitter and acidic foods actually bind to your tongue or, you know, stimulate receptors on your tongue and stimulate the vagus nerve, which is our big parasympathetic rest and digest nerve in the body. So that could look like even doing like a good squeeze of lemon juice in a small amount of water because it's not good for your teeth, anything that is acidic is. Um, So, you know, with anything super acidic, you do want to either drink it very quickly and swish your mouth out with water afterwards or use a straw. But even just having something like that just before you eat, for example, breakfast, if you really struggle to digest breakfast, can actually help in some cases. Or even it's one of those little tips tips and tricks that I recommend to even ease nausea in some cases. That's a great tip. And that's so fascinating that stimulating those bitterness receptors uh, stimulates the vagus nerve. And I'm just thinking in general of how bitter foods I really don't like. And I wonder Mm. if it's like my vagus nerve is like, so I don't know that it's like 
hard to even get it into that realm. But lemon juice, like I didn't realize that lemons had that. And I wonder, because I think um, some people use ginger for nausea too. Mm. I wonder if that has a similar kind of effect, but that's also a great tip. The reminder of anything acidic is not the friend of our teeth because our teeth enamel and our having healthy teeth is so important too, to having a healthy body in general. And it makes sense. Like once the gums, you know, a lot of patients with hypermobility have, you know, friable or those kind of gums that bleed or have various issues with them. So it's just, it's so many things to keep in mind at the same time. And it's like, you know, it's so many different factors, but having this knowledge is, is really helpful. So those are some great tips. Uh, just if I could add one last thing about that, even with, it doesn't even have to be, for example, lemon juice in water. It could even just be using more, you know, lemon lemon, lime, those sorts of flavors in your cooking in, you know, just general traditional meals. I mean, not traditional meals, especially, but for mm -hmm. example, if you're having avocado on toast, do a really good squeeze of lemon juice on that. If you're having a soup, put some lemon or vinegar on that. Like I know I do that with, you know, making, um, you know, some vegetable stews, for example, um, or, you know, um, braised cabbage, just traditionally in braised cabbage, a lot of vinegar is put in there, which can then, you know, stimulate those same receptors and really help with that. Uh, if you're making a salsa to go on, you know, tacos or something like that, then you can also add lime in there. Just getting back all of those small sorts of things and just being conscious of that can, you know, that's another really great way to go about those sorts of things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are some great tips to be able to try for sure. What about sort of other, you know, supplementation issues? Do you, do you look at salt and electrolyte levels? Is there a way people can, you know, detect whether they're having imbalances, you know, at, at that level? Because I've, I've certainly heard a lot about that in the hypermobile context. And I personally feel like taking electrolyte supplements is, is helpful for me. No, taking electrolyte supplements and increasing salt intake in general can be wonderfully helpful. And particularly just, you know, helping to increase that blood volume and buffer against some of those changes that do happen when we, you know, change posture. And in terms of, you know, whether we can test and check for these things, I'm not sure I'm, you know, potentially there might be, you know, other functional tests out there we can do. But from my knowledge at the moment, you know, looking at electrolytes on blood tests, for example, electrolytes are controlled within such a tight range because they're what stimulate, you know, all of your, you know, muscles to contract and release in your body and a whole bunch of other essential functions. So they've got to be incredibly tightly controlled in your blood. But if people still are experiencing dizziness, heart palpitations, any of those postural orthostatic issues, then, you know, adding more salt can be really helpful. But I guess the thing that I try and encourage people as well with increasing salt intake is try and still, um, you know, piggyback the salt onto foods that are going to be easy to digest and going to be helpful to our gut microbiome. Switching gears a little bit, let's go back to something we touched on a little bit earlier, which was because you had this uh, great observation in the context of making smoothies and how getting that protein, fiber, and fat. And that's something, you know, learning about that has been helpful for me, and particularly the fat component, because I, I feel like kind of the way I was raised and wh what I learned as a kid in school was, you know, kind of, you know, avoid, you know, the food pyramid, you know, use fats very sparingly. But I was talking to a naturopath a few years ago, and he suggested taking a spoonful of oil whenever feeling really sympathetically activated. Um, so like, you know, kind of fight or flight. And he suggested either olive oil or coconut, like median chain triglyceride coconut oil. Mm. And I, I prefer the taste of that to just 
olive oil. I still mix it with a little bit of water because the oiliness in the mouth is a little mm. jarring. But I wonder if you have thoughts on, you know, particularly healthy fats that tend to be well tolerated or again, theme of the day, if this goes back to individual body differences. Yeah, so fats can be really, really tricky to digest, um, especially when we're more in that sympathetic dominant place. But I think uh, firstly, choosing ones, or well, I always try and, you know, if people are, you know, because people do can sometimes be a little bit more fat intolerant, so to speak. So they, um, I guess, you know, not able to digest and absorb larger amounts of fats. And if people have the mental capacity, then we try and go back to, okay, if we've got to budget our fats, let's try and get some really good quality ones in here. So in particular, focusing on um, omega-3 rich foods can be really good. Yeah, so that could be, you know, including small amounts of things like chia seeds, for example, work wonderfully in smoothies or, um, you know, other fat rich foods like nuts. And if people are struggling to digest those, that's why, you know, you know, often you know, soaking chia seeds into a chia pudding can help a little bit. For example, with nuts, you can buy activated nuts or kind of do that yourself. So activated nuts are when you soak them and then you dehydrate them. So they're kind of food safe and shelf stable. But even just, you know, soaking your nuts overnight, but not leaving them too long because that's a food safety risk. But that can make them a lot more digestible as well and remove some of those what they call phytates and anti-nutrient compounds that can block the absorption of a few things and make them a little bit more tricky to digest. So I'd really start with including more whole foods containing fats where possible, because then you're also getting a bunch of other nutrients. It really gives you a bit more bang for your buck. But even for example, as you said, using, um, you know, a drizzle of a really good, you know, of a nice olive oil on some food, that can be a really great way to go about that as well. But uh, I I guess, again, it's going to come back to working with your health team Mm -hmm. and knowing your tolerance and just trying to gently ease that up where you can. But with any, I think particularly with fat digestion, it can take a long, long time. And, you know, people's tolerance for, I guess, any foods that they react to can go up or down, thresholds Mm -hmm. can change. Even coming back to, you know, doing a good food and symptom diary can be a really insightful way of reflecting on that. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot more ground to cover, but we're at about almost approaching the hour mark. What do you think about pausing the conversation here and doing part three on the rest of our topics? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, Actually, just one more note, though, I would really like to touch on in terms of the supplement side of things, B12. Would you be open to just quickly talking about that as well? And potentially a very quick chat about magnesium? Yeah. Yeah. So um, on the B12 side of things, so B12, I just, I think mentioning B12 deficiency in the context of POTS is something that I also think is super duper important because I guess B12 deficiency symptoms can actually not or mimic, but be similar to many POTS symptoms. And what I found in clinic is that, you know, I've worked with quite a few people um, who have, you know, had to visit hospital for various POTS-like symptoms and flare-ups. So for example, heart palpitations, um, you know, having, you know, um, really fast heartbeats and, you know, headaches and migraines. And then when we go back and test their B12, it's actually suboptimal. So that's something that I'd really encourage everyone to go and have a look for as well, especially because B12 is one of those nutrients that does rely on stomach acid to absorb and it only comes from animal food. So especially if you're vegetarian or vegan or have a low intake of animal foods, but even more so if we're on medications that reduce stomach acid further, like PPIs, or generally have a bit more of a poor digestion and nausea. So um, I know in Australia, um, you know, sometimes if you're 
or if your B12 levels are kind of under that 200 to 300 mark, or you can chat to your doctor about potentially doing B12 shots. Otherwise, there's some great supplements out there that can help to increase levels of that and uh, keep them up because that can really, really help with POTS symptoms too, but only if you're deficient. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great tip. And yeah, I've heard that quite a lot that B vitamin deficiencies can be um, common people with different um, hypermobility conditions. And so that's such a great tip because it's such a critically important substance, as you indicate, and is one that if you're deficient can be corrected with supplementation, again, with guidance of a professional, but again, also recognizing how difficult that is to come <laughs> Oh, it's, yeah, such, it's really being stuck between a rock and a hard place with those things sometimes. And I guess kind of similar with magnesium as well, as you, as we touched on before with the magnesium float pools, you know, the literature is starting to say that, you know, people with hypermobility are at much higher risk of nutrient deficiencies and magnesium is one of those nutrients that's potentially at a higher risk. So um, I find that supplementing with magnesium can also be one of those things that really helps almost hack back into that nervous system and just get us into that fight and, or rest and digest mode a little bit easier. That's something else as well that uh, can be worth talking to a health professional about and getting some supplementation advice on. Absolutely. And for anyone out there who is deficient in magnesium and is looking for ways to supplement it, I guess just throwing out my own experience and again, to run this by a professional in your own instance, but we mentioned the flow tanks, but also when possible, Um, baths with Epsom salts because Epsom salts Mm. have quite high magnesium. And I've tried a number of different topical magnesium applications because we talked about how it can be absorbed through the skin. And I've found this is not a product placement, um, but uh, just throwing out my own personal experience. I found that in the US, the product that's called Mo Maggie, it's like more magnesium, but shortened. Mm. That's the one that I use because some of the other oil-based preparations can be a bit too oily on my skin and can be hard to sort of manage like just even applying it so I found that one to be helpful especially for the kind of like leg and muscle twitching spasms and a little bit helpful with pain a little bit taking the edge off not not a cure-all for muscle spasms by any means but those little little gains can can make a big difference so yeah just throwing that out there for anyone who could be helpful for. Anything else you want to add on the topic of POTS, hypermobility and diet before we, I guess, pause it before um, our our next part? No, I've really enjoyed our chat today. And I think we've gone through a couple of different areas, um, you know, of where people can potentially start with nutrition and POTS. And I can't think of anything else at the moment. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I've really enjoyed our chat too. Thank you so much for joining us again. And I'm looking forward to covering the rest of our great topics. And you just, you have a fantastic presence online. It's clear that you really do your research and you really listen to your patients and kudos to you for all of the great work that you're doing. And thank you again for joining us today. This was really lovely. Guys, thank you so, so much for having me on, Kerry. That's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. See you next time. Bye.